1 Thessalonians 5 is where we're going to be this morning again. And as often happens, a, uh, a church found itself suddenly without its pastor. And a committee was formed to search for a new person. And in due course, so the committee received a letter of application for the position. And the letter read like this, quote, gentlemen, understanding that your pulpit is vacant, I should like to submit my application. I, I'm generally considered to be a good preacher. I've been a leader in most places that I have served. I've also found time to do some writing on the side. I am over 50 years of age, and while my health is not the best, I still manage to get enough work done so as to please my parish. As for references, I'm somewhat handicapped. I have never preached in any place for more than three years. And the churches I have preached in have generally been pretty small, even though they were located in rather large cities. In some places, I've had to leave because my ministry actually caused riots and disturbances. Even where I stayed, I didn't get along too well with the other religious leaders in town, which may influence the kind of references these places will actually send you. I have also been threatened several times and even been physically attacked three or four times. I've gone to jail for witnessing to my convictions. Still, I feel sure that I can bring vitality to your church, even though I am not particularly good at keeping records. I have to admit, I don't even remember all those that have baptized. However, if you can use me, I should be pleased to be considered. Hearing this application read aloud, the committee members were aghast. How could anyone think that a church like theirs could consider a man who was nothing but a troublemaking, absent-minded ex-jailbird? What was his name anyway, someone said. Well, said the chairman of the committee, the letter is simply signed, Paul. <laughs> and you knew that was coming, right? Yeah. Humor aside, the reality of that piece really kind of helps us to realize just how leadership roles and the expectations that have been placed upon ministry leaders have evolved over the years since Christ commissioned his apostles. Like it or not, the way that people view the ministry of the church and its leaders has changed drastically. And to be honest, in some cases, for very good reason. I came across a Lutheran newsletter that had a few tongue-in-cheek suggestions for church members who are unhappy with their pastors. Now, I understand now I'm putting my life on the line here. <laughs> Simply send a copy of this letter, it said, to six other churches who are tired of their ministers. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of your list. <laughs> Add your name at the bottom of the list, and in one week you will receive 16,436 ministers, and one of them should be just what you're looking for. Have faith in this letter. Please follow through with it at all costs. Breaking the chain could result in severe consequences. The last person who broke this chain ended up with his old pastor back. <laughs> now, for the last few weeks, we have been looking at the real responsibilities that we all have for maintaining right relationships within the church context. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 22 is our context. And it's pregnant with principles for right relationships in the context of of church life and ministry. And in a series of short statements here, very small staccato statements, Paul lays out some very important principles of what Christ followers ought to be concerned with as the time of Christ's coming approaches. 
So in the first message that I preached in verses 14 to 15, we looked at specifically our mutual responsibility toward each other. And I said that that was to care for each other, dare to care. Last time we were together, we unpacked our responsibility to maintain a biblical attitude toward life by arming ourselves with a joyful heart, a prayerful mind, and a thankful spirit. Today, we're going to back up a little bit. We're going to back up a little bit and look at what Paul has to say about our personal responsibilities toward our spiritual leaders. So back up to 1 Thessalonians 5 and look at verses 12 and 13 with me as I read it. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, I must confess, I have a difficult time teaching these two verses of Scripture, simply because they have to do with pastors and leaders of which I am one. Nevertheless, as I have prayed over these verses, I realize that they must be communicated, and for one very good reason, because they are the Word of God. And uh, that's one of the things when you're preaching expositionally, you can't skirt verses. You have to preach them when they show up. And these verses are the Word of God, and they're relevant to us all, me included as a pastor. More specifically, they don't just deal with pastors. Okay, they deal with any person in a leadership position in the church. So let's state that right from the outset. Friends, whether you know it or not, there are a number of ministry leaders in this church. They might not hold the title of pastor or elder. They may not always be on this platform or visible to you, but they certainly lead, they labor, they love you, and they live to serve not only Christ, but all of us, his people. And biblically, they deserve, according to these scriptures, our appreciation, our affirmation, and our cooperation as it is laid out here in this passage. So what I am about to say to you today is not designed to be self-serving. I'd rather crawl into a hole, have somebody else preach it. But it's pointed at recognizing our personal and God-given responsibilities toward all those who lead us in the body of Christ. Whether a paid pastor, an elder, or a worship leader, or a youth leader, a nursery ministry director, or a small group leader, if they're leading us according to God's word, that's the criteria, they deserve our love and respect. Here's a reason why God spoke these words through the Apostle Paul. Because when leaders lead according to God's will and followers respond according to God's word, the body grows according to God's way. That's the picture of a healthy church, a church that will not shrink away in shame at the return of Christ. Romans chapter 12 verse 10 says this, says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Now, God calls each one of us to practice honor toward each other, to give preference toward one another, show respect for each other, and esteem one another. And yet, when it comes to leaders in the church, he says something really unique. The phrase here in verse 12, that says, esteem them very highly in love, 
is a very unique statement in the New Testament and difficult to render accurately in the English language. Literally, the phrase very highly triples the intensity of the verb esteem. The verse could read like this, take the lead in regarding them superabundantly beyond all measure of honor. Go out of bounds with honor. Overflow the limits. See why I don't want to preach these things? Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way, overwhelm them with appreciation and love. That's in the message. Now that, that, Paul says, is our biblical responsibility. The call of leadership in the body of Christ is a wonderful call, but it's a difficult call. And Paul understood that quite personally. And so let's try to get a grasp on the importance of his words here, because when it comes to our relationship with those who lead, Paul says... We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you and the Lord and give you instruction. So the first statement here that I think that the way we do this is that Paul is kind of implying and stating our personal appreciation for our leaders actually lifts them up for the task at hand. Verse 12. Now, I read a statement once that really hit hard, commenting on the frustration that many church leaders face today. One man said these words. He said, pastoring used to be all image and no stress. And now it's all stress and no image. That's an interesting statement. Statistics seem to confirm that statement. Actually, a survey taken by Fuller Institute of Church Growth some years ago Um, And then again by Leadership Journal magazine surveyed showed that 90% of pastors work more than 46 hours a week. 94% feel pressure to have an ideal family. 33% said that being in the ministry was hazardous to their family. Now, I'm I'm, I'm happy to say that the current statistics on that, there's 70% of pastors say that actually being in the ministry has been beneficial to their family. And I would be one of those. I'd agree with that. 50% felt unable to meet the needs of the job. That one I agree with. And 90% felt inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. 70% do not have someone they consider a close personal friend. That's a tough one. That's an accurate one. I know a lot of pastors, and they would all say probably the same thing. They maybe have one or two. Those are pretty disturbing findings. Actually, Paul's not arguing for a better image for leaders in this text, but for for respect and valid respect. The, The word appreciate here is literally to know and to regard with favor. Does that mean you have to be best friends with every ministry leader in the church? Of course not. What Paul is saying here is that we ought to recognize them for who they are and what they do, to care for them, to take an interest in them, respect them and hold them in due regard as those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction in the Lord, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, Paul did that very thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he talked about acknowledging such men. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 25 and 29 says, Hold men like this particular person he was mentioning in that text in high regard. And again, Paul's not simply referring to pastors here. 
Leadership in the New Testament church is not vested in one person. It's always a plurality of leaders in the scripture. Notice also that they're not to be esteemed simply for their title or their educational accomplishments or their age or their spiritual gifts or possibly their charismatic personality. Paul lists three clear reasons in this text that leaders are to be appreciated and respected in the church. And here they are. They work diligently, they watch responsibly, and they warn us spiritually. That's what it says right here. Those three things in verse 12. That's the criteria. So let's unpack those a little bit. Respect them for their diligent work. Paul says, appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Now, anyone called to leadership in the ministry needs to know something about the job. If you're feeling called to ministry, you need to know something about the job. It is work. It's work. Spiritual leadership is physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally taxing. That's why Paul uses the word labor in the, in, when he describes it. And it's often exhausting. The word here emphasizes this weariness that follows the straining of one's, all of one's powers. It means to be spent. Let's look at a couple of scriptures where Paul mentions this. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 29. Colossians 1 verse 29. Paul says, for this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power which mightily works Within me. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to say, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. Paul was struggling, he was laboring in the ministry here. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes, For it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially. Of believers. Chapter 5, verse 17. He uses the word again, and he says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And then in Romans 16, Romans chapter 16, and verse 6, he highlights a couple of people. And this is how he describes them. In chapter 16, verse 6, he says, Greet Mary, who has, what's it say? Worked hard for you or labored for you. Verse 12. Greet Trophina and Trophosa. How would you like to have names like that? Workers in the Lord, greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. It's labor. A lot of people don't understand what is involved in leading a ministry. I once read this job description for a pastor. The pastor teaches, though he must solicit his own classes. He heals, though without pills or a knife. He's sometimes a lawyer, often a social worker, sometimes something of an editor, a bit of a philosopher, an entertainer, a salesman, a de decorative piece for public functions, and he's supposed to be a scholar. He visits the sick, marries people, buries the dead, labors to console those who sorrow and to admonish those who sin and tries to stay sweet when chided for not doing his duty. He plans programs, 
appoints committees when he can get them, spends considerable time in keeping people out of each other's hair. Between times, he prepares a sermon, and he preaches it on Sunday every 168 hours, mind you, at least one, right? Somebody once said, and I love this thing, I say it all the time, is that preaching, you know, preaching on Sunday is like having a baby and then finding out you're pregnant the next day. Because <laughs> that's what it is, right? Every week. And so... This description says he preaches it to those who don't happen to have, uh, to those who happen to be there and don't have any other engagements to go to. And then on Monday, he smiles when some jovial chap roars, what a job one day a week that you have. Now, that's not too far from reality for a lot of us, but an article in Leadership reveals that today's average pastor works 55 hours a week, actually, and divides his time with all of those different things, planning and attending meetings, teaching, preaching, study, prep, pastoral care counseling, conflict mediation, miscellaneous personal development. And that leaves four hours, basically, to invest in long-range vision planning, developing current and future leaders and evangelism, activities that have a profound impact for the future of the church. That's why in the, in the Bible, the church is led by a plurality of leaders. Not one. Other leadership positions are equally misunderstood, not just the pastors, as I said. So, for example, think about this. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but this is fact. Think about the planning, the scheduling, the selecting, the organization of, the copying, the practicing, the fine-tuning, the praying, the studying, the teaching, the coordinating, the mentoring, and the performing responsibility of a worship leader. Not to mention fielding complaints from the congregation, troubleshooting relational and artistic tension among the musicians, which never happens, right? <laughs> and keeping the pastor and the people and the sound technician all happy. And all this is usually undertaken on a voluntary basis in addition to a full-time job. That's just one of the other leaders in the church. Ever consider the youth pastor's position who is constantly trying to satisfy the expectations of the kids and the parents and the other pastors? How about the trustee leader who oversees recruiting, scheduling, maintenance responsibilities of all the church facilities? Or the children's ministry leaders who must plan and coordinate childcare activities and lessons while creatively motivating and enlisting adult workers that are resistant to volunteer to make it all happen? How about the local outreach ministry leaders? Attempting to distribute food and clothing to families in need and entails trips to food banks and organization and maintenance and record keeping and practicing patient, cheerful, interpersonal communication with agencies and pastors and fellow helpers and not to mention a sensitivity toward those who need the gospel. Friends, we need to appreciate and respect all the leaders that God has called and who diligently labor among us. Amen? Hold them in high regard. But secondly, Paul also indicates that we are to respect those same leaders who have charge over you in the Lord, it says here. Have charge over you in the Lord. Respect them for their responsible watch. 
He's referring to leaders who not only oversee ministries, but who protect and care for the church as those appointed to their charge by Christ. Now, he's not talking about an office or a title. He's talking about a calling and a function, which comes directly from God, by the way. It's leadership that operates out of service to the Lord regardless of the pay. It's care given regardless of whether or not it's accepted or appreciated. It's leadership that is performed in the power of the Spirit, hopefully, and in the character of Christ-like humility. Leadership that operates according to the truth. That's the kind of leadership Paul says to respect. And believe me, some people don't respect that at all. And it comes out of all sorts, in all sorts of ways that end up causing division in the church. A true biblical leader, regardless of the specific ministry that we're talking about here, should have a sincere interest in the spiritual health of those Christ has placed under his or her care. And especially so for those who are appointed as elders. I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter 5. And look at the first three verses there. This is a charge given to elders and to pastors. Therefore, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and the witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That's a heavy calling. That's a really heavy calling. And at the same time, the scripture urges all those who are part of the body to willingly follow such leadership, who have their best interests at heart. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 says it this way. It'll be on the screen. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, back up to that first verse. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. I know what you're thinking. In the back of your mind, the headlines, the articles in Christianity today, the people that have been abused, pastors that have taken liberties and done things to people over a long period of time that are horrendous. And that's the first thing that comes to some people's mind when they read a verse like this, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Are you kidding me? This is not a day and age when you can say that kind of thing because it's been so abused by people over the years. So I want to make a disclaimer here. This is the word of God, right? It says obey your leaders and submit to their authority you are not to submit to anyone's authority that is not following the scriptural principles of what a good leader should be. If they, are, if they are doing, not doing that, 
even though they hold the title, if they're abusing the privilege, the calling, the authority, don't submit to their authority. Because that would be a sin. Because we need to be, obey God rather than men. And so many times people are so fearful of actually coming forth with the truth because of what it will do or what they will feel or how much guilt they'll be pressed down under. See, we live in a world, though, of individualism and personal independence. On the flip side of this, people are hard-pressed to submit to anyone, even good leaders. And especially if the council is uncomfortable at all. Our culture has encouraged people to defy direction, to ridicule leadership, and to question authority. You're not the boss of me is the hallmark of today's individual and the average Christian carries that same attitude right into the church. Philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said these words. He said, hell is other people. Christian apologist and philosopher Ravi Zacharias, however, said that heaven can be other people too. And we have the power to bring a little bit of heaven into the lives of others every day as Christian leaders. That's a privilege. That's a high honor. And it's also a heavy responsibility. The church is not supposed to be squeezed into the world's mold, but rather to be remade by God so that our whole attitude of mind is changed, proving that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. Amen? A longtime chairman of the board and CEO of uh, J.C. Penney Company and also the vice president of Caterpillar International, both of whom have long been active churchmen, have expressed their concern about this in years gone by and insist that the business community sometimes treats its leaders with more kindness and grace than the church does. And nowhere is this more readily seen than when a pastor or a ministry leader seeks to admonish someone who is in need of spiritual correction. According to our text, not only are to we respect spiritual leaders for their diligent work and their responsible watch, but also we are to respect them for their spiritual warnings. Look at verse 12. It says it again. Respect those who have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Spiritual correction is often met with anger and resentment and accusations. And that's understandable because discipline's never, never pleasant, is it? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says that clearly. And yet God's word insists that to instruct and to caution and to warn and to admonish and to help to correct those in error in a spirit of genuine love is a necessary part of leadership in a biblical church and in the body of Christ. The hard reality is that leaders who fail to exercise this responsibility, who fail to warn people of sin, will inevitably lose the respect of God. And that's the one that we really want the respect of, right? Colossians chapter 1, again. Paul says in verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. 
Now take that verse and put it alongside of 1 Peter chapter 5 in the first three verses where it says, shepherd the flock of God, not lording it over them, right? Anybody that wants to lord it over a flock shouldn't be in the ministry. But this is the motivation right here in verse 28. We want to present every man with all wisdom so that we can present every man complete in Christ. Most pastors that I know, that I'm friends with, want people to come to Christ. They do not want to create anything that would cause them to walk away from Christ. That's the motive for what they do. Right relationships in the church, Paul says, will flourish when a healthy respect is restored to the leaders who love their people and who fill their call to work diligently, watch responsibly, and warn them spiritually. Paul says, respect those leaders. Appreciate them. Your personal appreciation lifts them up to continue the task. Secondly, Paul says in verse 13, in the very first part of the verse, that our individual affirmation actually loves them through. It loves them through the trials that they experience. Verse 13 again, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You might be thinking, couldn't we honor them too much? I mean, we don't want to feed their ego, make them full of themselves, make their heads swell. Well, arrogance and pride are definitely always a potential temptation for any leader. But in light of the current trends in our world, according to one source, those sins are not the problem. The hurt, the neglect, the dishonoring have gone on for so long and with such intensity that large numbers of pastors are turning in their resignations because they feel so alone and unsupported. The statistics used to be crazy in this over the past few years. Thank goodness a Barna study now shows that that's kind of changing. That most, a lot of pastors now are staying in it for the long haul and they feel that they are excited and refreshed in the ministry. And all that at the same time that attendance is going down in most churches. So I wonder if God's weeding out the troublemakers and <laughs> keeping those groups together that really want to serve the Lord. I don't know. I don't know. Friends, Satan's one desire is to destroy the work of Christ in the world. And one of the most effective ways of doing that is to destroy Christian leaders. Strike the shepherd, the flock gets scattered. That's what Jesus said, right? No matter what kind of a leader that you are. Same thing in families. Strike the head of the household. Strike the fathers. Strike the dads. The kids go nuts. That's not to say that moms don't lead well. But that's not the way God designed it, right? He designed it to have two and when good leaders stop leading because of disillusionment, the church is severely crippled. So what can we do to turn the situation around? Well, for one, we ought to recognize and refuse to play into Satan's subtle hand and start determining to follow God's word. Let's get practical for a few minutes here. 
Hopefully I'm practical all the way through a message, but let's get really practical here, okay? First, we need to realize that when it comes to relating to our leaders, mark these things. They're important. That affirmation is better than accusation. Ephesians 4.29 says, you must let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for the building up of the one in need, that it might give grace to those who hear. In 1752, just a mere 40 years before this church was formed, a group of Methodist men, including John Wesley, signed a covenant which every man agreed to hang on his study wall. The six articles of this solemn agreement were as follows. Number one, that we will not listen or willingly inquire after ill concerning one another. Number two, that if we do hear any ill of each other, we will not be forward to believe it. Number three, that as soon as possible, we will communicate what we hear by speaking or writing to the person concerned. Number four, that until we had done this, we will not write or speak a syllable of it to any other person. Number five, that neither will we mention it after we have done this to any other person. And number six, that we will not make any exception to any of these rules unless we think ourselves absolutely obliged in conference. Talk about an anti-gossip pact among pastors, among leaders. Always remember this, and you know this by now. I've said it before. But the person who tells you don't tell this to a soul has probably told all the souls you know. Because whoever will gossip to you will gossip about you. Does that mean we turn a blind eye to leaders who are engaged in sin and we never confront them? Are we to remain loyal at all costs and to fail to hold them accountable? And that happens in churches. It's happened to a, a, a recent church that I'm very familiar with. And it's sad. But absolutely not. You hold them accountable. The scripture gives us clear instructions on correctly applying respect for those in leadership. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 says this, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. See, affirmation is better than accusation. But no one, mark this now, and I'm talking about myself, no one, no matter how well respected, no matter, is above spiritual accountability. That's me, you, any of the elders, any of the ministry leaders here. No one is above accountability. Amen? And the safeguard for that flows out of recognizing that, secondly, admiration is better than acclaim. Think about that one. The Bible says to honor your leaders by loving and respecting them, not by putting them on a pedestal. Refuse to deify anyone in the ministry. And that's what's happened in some of these huge churches where, where the leader is so out front and so well known and has celebrity status that they become deified by people. God says, I will not share my glory with another. Respect for any God-appointed leader is healthy. 
and biblical. But as one man has said, and I love this quote, this comes from a pastor, by the way, quote, thrones are for kings and queens. Worship is for the living God. Pedestals are for vases and flowers and sculptured busts of men and women now dead. Don't enthrone your pastor or any minister for that matter, unquote. It's a good quote. In Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18, and you can read it this week. We're not going to turn there. But the crowd in Lystra tried to enshrine Paul and Barnabas, if you know the text, because of their preaching and healing a, a man lame from birth. They were trying to, to deify them. In verse 12, they were calling them gods who had come down from heaven and wanted to offer, sacri they wanted to offer sacrifices to, to them. Paul and Barnabas tried to dissuade them and flatly refused their worship. And by verse 19, that fickle crowd had stoned Paul and left him for dead. Right? Within about nine or ten verses in that text, he goes from being a god to being stoned. I had to laugh as one author pointed out that this event is a good example of the ministry. You are in the penthouse one minute and in the outhouse the next. In the morning they deify you and before dark they're stoning you. Neither extreme is appropriate or fair. Here's the next thing. Awareness is better than assumption. Awareness is better than assumption. Before you judge a leader's motives or reasons for doing things, just remember that you do not have all the details. In fact, you probably have very few of them. I'll never forget the story of a well-known and respected pastor and Bible teacher, which if I said his name, you would all recognize it immediately, told about how he learned this lesson the hard way. I will never forget what happened to me several years ago, he writes, that illustrated how wrong I could be in judging another person. I was speaking at a summer Bible conference for a week. Attending the same conference was a couple that I had not seen before. And we brief, briefly met the first night. And both were friendly and seemed especially glad to be there. And I began to notice as the week wore on that the man kept falling asleep in every one of the meetings. I mean, every single one. Normally that doesn't bother me, he says. I often talk in other people's sleep. But this time, for some strange reason, it began to really bug me. And by Wednesday, I felt feelings of irritation toward the guy. As I mentioned, that has happened to be numerous times that people fall asleep. But this guy was out within 10 minutes after I started to speak. It made no difference if I spoke in the morning or if I spoke in the in the evening, he slept, and by the last meeting on Friday evening, through which he slept, of course, I had become convinced that it was the wife that wanted to be there, not the husband. I sized him up as a, as a guy who talked one way but lived another, probably a carnal Christian, I mused. Well, she stayed after the crowd and her husband had left, and she asked if she could speak with me for a few minutes. I figured she wanted to talk about how unhappy she was in the marriage, living with a man who didn't have the same spiritual interests as she did. How wrong I was, he said. She said their being there was his idea. It had become his final wish. 
I didn't understand. She informed me that he had terminal cancer and had only weeks to live. And at his request, they attended the conference where I was speaking, even though the medication that he was taking for pain made him sleepy. Something which greatly embarrassed him. He loves the Lord, she said, and you are his favorite Bible teacher. He wanted to be here to meet you and to hear you, no matter what. Pastor says, I was sincerely stunned. And she thanked me for the week and left, and I stood there all alone, as deeply rebuked as I had ever been. I had judged my brother, and I was wrong. I was as wrong as I could possibly be. You don't always know the details, do you? Finally here, I think Paul is implying that intercession is better than assassination. Intercession is better than assassination. Two things are hard on the heart, running upstairs and running down people. Friends, I can tell you from the heart, from my heart, that leaders in the church don't need any more pot shots taken at them, but they do need prayer lifted up for them. Paul himself repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly asked for prayer in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul concludes that text on the, putting on the armor of God with these words, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And in 1 Thessalonians, right here, in this, in this chapter, chapter 5, if you look at verse 25, what does Paul say? Brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. If Paul needed it then, certainly we need it now, wouldn't you say? What would happen if instead of shooting our wounded leaders, not just pastors, as I say, like all the Christian leaders that we know, we covenanted to pray for them. And this convicts me as well. Because, you know, I'm not immune to any of this stuff. Sometimes I get a little feisty, too, with spiritual, with ministry leaders. Yeah, I need to deal with it. And I think things would change dramatically if we just got on our knees and interceded instead of assassinated. I mean, yes, People do wrong things, and it needs to be addressed. That comes under the admonishment part. But you cross the line when you start assassinating people, right? I think the church would never be the same if we did that. Dr. Wilbur Chapman often told of going to Philadelphia to become the pastor of a, of a church out there. And after his first sermon, an older gentleman met him in front of the pulpit and said, You know what? You're pretty good. You're pretty young. You're pretty young to be the pastor of this great church. We have always had older pastors. How would you like to hear that? I mean, I worried about hearing that first time I came here because everybody, everybody in this church at that time was over 55. And we've always had older pastors. I'm afraid you won't succeed here, but you preach the gospel and I'm going to help you all I can. 
And I looked at him, said, Dr. Chapman, and I said to myself, this guy's a crank. But the older gentleman continued. He said, I'm going to pray for you that you may have the Holy Spirit's power upon you. And two others in this church have agreed and covenanted with me to do the same thing. And so Dr. Chapman goes on to relate the outcome of that. He says, I didn't feel so bad when I learned he was going to pray for me. The three became ten. And then the ten became twenty. And then the twenty became fifty. And the fifty became two hundred who used to meet before the service to pray that the Holy Spirit might come upon me, he says. In another room, 18 elders knelt so close around me to pray for me that I could put out my hands and touch them on all sides. I always went into the pulpit feeling that I would have the anointing in answer to the prayers of 219 men. Can you imagine? He said it was easy to preach. It was a joy. Anybody could preach with such conditions. And what was the result? He said, we received 1,100 into our church by conversion in three years, 600 of which were men. He says, I do not see how the average preacher under average conditions preaches at all. Church members have much more to do than go to church as curious, idle spectators to be amused and entertained. It is their business, he says, to pray mightily that the Holy Ghost will clothe the preacher and make his words like dynamite. Right relationships in the church, Paul says, will flourish when healthy respect is restored to leadership. Our personal appreciation lifts them up. Our loving affirmation sees them through. And the last thing here, which really requires no unpacking, is that our mutual cooperation lightens their load. Verse 13, the second part, live in peace with one another. That's all he has to say. So to summarize, our responsibility for right relationships in the church really begins with a seven-letter word. It's the word respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And that should be right on the tip of your tongues right now at the passing of Aretha Franklin, right? Who made that song popular. Respect, R, recognize them for who they are. They're real people with real weaknesses, but who are called of God to do what they do. Help them do it. E, exercise honor. S, support their work prayerfully, financially. P, protect their high calling. E, esteem them highly in love. C, consider their needs because leaders have emotions. They have hurts. They have problems. They have bad days too. And they hunger for close friendships. And they need our help. And T, take the high road. Live in peace. Live in peace. And make the job of all of our leaders more joyful. In some years, a popular computer company ran a national marketing campaign that communicated this message. Here was the tagline. Quote, something incredible happens when you give people power to succeed. They succeed. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.